You're listening to episode eight of the Raise Your Hand Motherhood Podcast. I think it's helpful to like get a little angry about it because it is kind of enraging to realize that there's this massive $7 billion diet industry, and that's just in the US. Worldwide, I don't remember the figure off the top of my head, but it's a lot. And they both like create the insecurities and then sell you the solutions. And I think it's especially heinous how much they target new moms because they know that it's a really vulnerable time. Welcome to the Raise Your Hand Motherhood Podcast, a place where you just might find or hear a tiny piece of your motherhood reality. I'm your host, Raylan Minka, an educator, writer, and emotionally frazzled toddler mom. If you've ever felt lonely in your motherhood journey or asked yourself, am I the only one experiencing this? Then you, my friend, are in the right place. Each episode focuses on a different but common motherhood struggle where we discuss the ups, the downs, and the WTFs with moms from all around the world. So whether you're stroller pushing and podcasting yourself around the neighborhood, waiting at the doctor's office for your next fertility treatment, or listening with a well-deserved glass of wine at the end of another full day of motherhood, welcome. I hope you can relate to some of what you hear in today's episode and get ready to raise your hand if you do. Hey mamas and welcome to episode eight of the Raise Your Hand Motherhood Podcast. I'm your host Raylan Minka and today we're talking about finding body neutrality after having children. In this episode, we'll discuss the many different ways our bodies shift and grow and change and do frigging cool things during pregnancy. And we'll also cover the pressures and challenges that many women face as a result of these changes, both during pregnancy and in all of the stages that come afterwards. Later in the episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jess Brock-Pitts. She's a licensed certified social worker who pivoted careers and became a certified personal trainer. Jess trained and specializes in intuitive eating, body positive fitness, and the weight neutral movement, among many other things. And we talk about what all of that means in our interview together. It was a really interesting conversation, so make sure you stay tuned for it. Okay, mamas, I'll be right back, so don't go anywhere. Did you know that the blood volume in a pregnant woman is almost double that of a regular person? Or that the body grows an entire organ to provide nutrients and oxygen to the baby? Thanks, placenta. That's really cool. Or that hormone levels in your body straight up change to help relax your body and prepare for childbirth? God, I I could look up interesting facts about pregnancy and labor all day long. There's certainly enough out there. How unbelievably strange is it that a sperm and an egg can meet and barring any unforeseen complications, less than a year later, a baby can be born. For real, it's pretty wild. But regardless of how cool the biology behind all of it is, Being pregnant is an intense and body-altering process. Things change. Organs move. Our bodies stretch and darken and loosen, and some of it's permanent and some of it isn't, and the process is different for everybody. Some of us gain weight faster than others during pregnancy. Some of us grow forwards while others grow sideways, while others appear to have simply swallowed a tiny basketball. Some people get incredibly sick while others glow and radiate and exemplify the ideal pregnant person, at least by society standards. Some women, like myself, experience melasma and develop what's referred to as a pregnancy mask, 
where the color-producing cells in our skin create dark patches, most commonly on the face. Many women develop or see an increase in stretch marks, which are a result of tiny tears in the tissue when skin is stretched too tightly. Some laboring women experience very smooth deliveries, while others experience a variety of physical changes postpartum, whether as a result of complications during or healing after a vaginal birth or a C-section. But almost every woman is subject to the same societal pressure to bounce back after having a baby. We're considered quote-unquote lucky if we don't gain a lot of weight during our pregnancies, and we're praised if we're able to get back to our pre-baby body as soon as possible. We feel shameful if pregnancy doesn't look cute on us like it does on so many social media influencers and celebrities. Think about that. Some women grow tiny humans in their bodies from scratch and are made to feel shamed about the ways their bodies changed in order to make that miraculous thing happen. And although there are probably mothers out there who are completely comfortable and at peace with their bodies after having children, the reality is that many, many, many moms out there are not. And with the way customized and targeted ads work nowadays in the social media we consume on a daily basis, new moms can start getting harassed by diet pages and magic pills and how to lose the baby belly solutions almost as soon as they get home from the hospital. It's so not okay. I spoke with a few women about their changing body image after having children, and these are the stories they wanted to share. Body image is such a hard thing. I really wanted, when I was pregnant and like after I had a baby, I really wanted to be like that earth mama that was like, my body is doing this incredible thing. I'm making a baby and how wonderful is that and how like beautiful is my body, you know? I wanted to be that person because I do believe those things. Alas, I am not. I am not that person. And I'm just like so desperate to get back to the way my body was <laughs> before I had a baby. Like I gained a lot of weight when I was pregnant and I still have a lot to lose. And, you know, I really want to do that in a healthy way. I want to, you know... But it's something that is important to me and something that like, I would say probably bothers me. But I also think for me with that, one of the things that's most important to me as a mom is that I am not doing any negative self-talk in front of my kid. And that's something that I like, that is really hard for me because I have definitely done that like my whole life. So I'm really, really working really hard about saying, okay, it's important if this is important to me about like being healthy and feeling like better about myself, but it has to be done in a really healthy way because I, I want to make sure that my son knows that I love the body that made him. And I think that's really important. Yeah. Ugh. Postpartum is hard stuff, man. I've always been someone who has struggled drastically with body image since I was a young child. I've always been very big. I'm almost six feet tall um, and have been easily close to or over 200 pounds my entire life. Um, during pregnancy, though, was the first time I can honestly say that I felt comfortable in my skin. I felt like growing this human 
distracted me from my body image issues. I enjoyed what I ate. I enjoyed my exercising and never really looked at the scale. I just embraced growing this human within me, this miracle. Um, uh, right after my daughter was born, my first child, I suffered really bad anxiety. And because of that, um, a lot of my eating disorders from when I was younger came back because of the anxiety. And I'd, I lost the baby weight quite quickly. Whereas my son, who just turned one, I have dealt with my anxiety through a lot of hard work, which has led to a very comfortable weight that gained on my body. So I still have struggles every day looking at the scale and wanting it to go back down to what I feel comfortable in. And I'm doing a lot of work and just therapy and trying to embrace this new body that created two miracles. And it's, I teach, I teach young children. I just went back to work and they've been actually saying to me this week, Oh, Miss Teacher, you look like you still have your baby in your tummy, you know, out of the mouths of babes. And basically the only thing that has helped me is just focusing on the fact that I'm not who I was before. I am a mother now and your body does change. But like I said, suffering with eating disorders and body dysmorphia my whole life. Um, it still is present and it is a daily struggle to continue to fight that ideal body that I've been struggling for in my mind and just embracing what my two babies have given me and focusing on them. How did I feel in my postpartum body? I'd say I felt quite good. My birth experience left me feeling strong and powerful and capable, which was amazing. I know that is not everyone's experience, but yeah, I felt I had really seen what my body could do and that was pretty neat. <laughs> there was still healing and things to go on, of course, but it wasn't a profound setback for me. And then I also gave my body lots of generous kind of acceptance that it would take time to find its way back to itself again as well. And as a postpartum baby me yoga teacher, I often have had my students have their hands on their belly and I invite them to embrace whatever cushion they find there and remind them of the profound transformation their body has gone through and that their body was home to their baby. So I've said those words, I had said those words for years to my students. So I think subconsciously I was telling that to myself regularly, which maybe that helped too. But generally I felt good in my postpartum body. Jess Brockpitz may have taken an unconventional route to becoming a certified personal trainer, but her mission is laser focused. She believes that everybody is worthy of love, respect, and dignity, just as it is. Jess aims to help women of every size find or rediscover a love of movement and believes that movement doesn't have to be miserable in order to have health benefits. Let's welcome Jess to the show. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, um, well, let's just jump right into it. I'm so excited that you're able to be here on the podcast to share both your personal and your professional story. So I'd love to start off just by having you introduce yourself a little bit to the listeners. So who are you? What do you do? And what are a few of your favorite things? 
So I am a mom of two boys, uh, 12 and nine years old. Um, and currently I work as a weight neutral personal trainer and a certified intuitive eating counselor. So um, what weight neutral personal trainer means is that I help people to find like movement that works for them and that they enjoy, but without focusing on their body size or weight. And I guess we can talk a little bit more about the intuitive eating stuff later. Um, and my favorite, so uh, I love to lift um, and I like, I love to lift heavy. Uh, mm. Some of my clients like to lift heavy too. And I just love helping other women find body and food peace and be able to find strength, like kind of whatever strength means for them, right? Yes. Because, you know, strong can mean different things yeah. to everybody. It doesn't always have to look exactly the same. Right. Okay. And we're going to come um, around full circle and, and talk about that. And I want to go back a little bit um, further back and talk about your experiences before getting into the work you're doing now as a clinical a, a clinical social worker, licensed. Yes. <laughs> so before becoming a personal trainer, I was a licensed clinical social worker. Well, I mean, I still am. I still have that license. Um, and a licensed uh, clinical alcohol and drug counselor. So I, um, I guess I got into the social work field kind of in my twenties. Like I, I don't gone through hard stuff and just wanted to like help other people. Right. So a lot of my social work career, I spent working in crisis settings. So uh, working with people having like mental health crises, whether it was like psychotic episodes or suicidal crisis, whatever. Like, mm -hmm. so I have since my early 20s been into like fitness. I was not sporty at all as a kid. Mm -hmm. And in my early 20s, I, it always sounds a little crazy. I signed up for a triathlon. Oh, nice. I was just like, I don't know. I've always been like, let's just go all in. So I, I signed up for a triathlon. I forget if I even owned a bike. Details. Minor details. Yeah, whatever. We can't let that hold us back. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I really loved, I think, just challenging my body and kind of pushing myself to see what, like, what I could do. Mm -hmm. Um, so from there, like I sort of was always into some form of movement, fitness, working out, whatever. And, uh, gradually in my social work career, I just started to get very burned out. And I started trying to think about like, you know, at that point I was in my like mid thirties and I'm like, I got to work for probably 30 more years, man. I don't think I can do this for 30 more years. What do I do? Uh, so I started working on a transition into fitness. So this has been kind of in the works for like about four-ish years now. And like now I've been in fitness full-time for about six months. So. And, and um, can you tell me a little bit about your business? My business is called Enlighten Well, and I do virtual personal training. I also have an on-demand video library. So like a library Ooh. of workouts that people can access at any time from anywhere. Um, a lot of my one-on-one -on -one personal training clients are women who came to me saying like, I hate working out, but I know I need to do it because I don't feel good if I don't do something. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, you know, we're working through some amount of like kind of pain 
uh, sometimes, you know, low back pain, what different kinds of aches and pains that come up if you've been living like kind of more sedentary. And then it's a lot of just trying to work through sometimes people have bad experiences with trainers who kind of approach things with this, like, we're going to push you to like your full limit all of the time kind of mentality. And that I feel like just makes it really not enjoyable for people. So in general, most of my clients, I'm not looking to just absolutely kill them every single session. I don't believe that that is necessary to progress. And it's not really helpful in maintaining like a lifelong yeah, good and healthy relationship with movement. You want your clients to find the joy to or to refine joy in fitness or find some type of fitness that they enjoy. Yeah. So so people who become personal trainers obviously are people who enjoy working out, right? Yeah. But not everyone enjoys working out. Like there's people who like that's just not an enjoyable thing. And I think that sometimes personal trainers don't always all the way understand that like the person in front of me might not feel the same way about this that I do. And I don't know why that's so hard for some trainers to get their minds wrapped around. Like, just because you love to do burpees until you're like (laughs) fighting for your life doesn't mean that everybody finds enjoyment in that. And it's okay for not everyone to like that. And movement like that isn't really necessary to see change or progress. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like that's not, it doesn't have to be like that to what's going to be more beneficial is like moderate intensity movement that you do consistently, not like doing two workouts a year (laughs) that are super intense near death experiences, (laughs) right? Like that's, that's, there's not really a lot of benefit to that. Yeah. It's way more beneficial to do something moderate that you actually do. One of the reasons I was so interested to talk to you was because you're coming from this mental health trained background and now transitioned into this personal fitness and and helping women and people discover joy in fitness again or find that. Um, So the episode today is talking about finding body neutrality post baby or post post children. Do you find that you work with a lot of clients who are mothers or pregnant women even? I do not have a lot of pregnant clients. Um, I do have a fair number of parents or mothers. And, you know, I think for a lot of moms, because I feel like the journey is sort of twofold, right? It's the body neutrality journey and then also the movement journey. And they they can kind of happen together, but they're sort of almost two different things, right? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the moms that I work with they have sort of already been working towards some type of body acceptance or body neutrality. Like, and then they're trying to figure out like, now I want to get moving. Like I know that my body needs this, but how do I do the movement and also not get hung up on focusing on weight right. again? So I would say that's a lot of my mom clients. And can you talk a little bit about what the difference between body acceptance or body neutrality or body positivity are? Some of these terms get used sort of interchangeably. And Mm -hmm. I mean, you can find different people who define things differently. Um, To me, body positivity 
I feel like it's the term that gets used the most, the most commonly, right? And I think body positivity comes with it, this idea that like you should feel good about your body, right? The other thing with body positivity is that its roots, like its origin, go back to like the fat acceptance movement out of the 60s. Okay. And gradually kind of through social media, what happened is body positivity sort of got watered down to not necessarily including people of larger sizes and to really being like people in much more socially acceptable bodies Mm. feeling okay about having like a little bit of cellulite or whatever. And I'm not saying that that is not also important, but I think that what has happened with body positivity is certain voices overwhelmed certain other ones. Mm. And so some people got sort of like pushed out of it. So that sort of background on body positivity, then gradually you started to hear or see body neutrality or body acceptance, which I think of as being sort of interchangeable. With them, I think comes more of an idea of like, it's not really realistic or necessary to like always feel good about your body. To love your body 100% of the time. Right. Like that's not really realistic and it's not really necessary. Right. And I, I think that with body neutrality, we start to shift into a thought process that's more like, how my body looks is honestly not even that important. Like it doesn't even really matter that much. And then that I think enables people to think about other things than just obsessing about their body. Right. Right. Like my kids don't care if I have a gut or not. Yeah. Right. My kids care that I can go and ride my bike around the neighborhood with them. They care about that. Mm -hmm. You can go on hikes with them. You can go. Yes. Yes, they care about that. They don't care if my butt looks fat while I'm doing it. Right. They don't care about that. That does not matter to them. Maybe maybe if you have teenagers. Yeah, <laughs> it's, only, it's it. only, when, only when they start receiving the message from society that, that's out there that maybe they start to care about that. But yeah, you're right. I think it's right. really important for us to sort of speak in a bo- I'm I'm learning about all of this, but to be neutral about body size. Yes. Yeah. So my older son tends to be a little bit heavier. My younger one tends to be a little bit smaller. I don't know. They've kind of both been like that since they were very, very tiny babies. Mm -hmm. But my older son, you know, at the doctors, he's starting to get BMI chats, right? which I have requested them to not do. And they'll, they, it's like they halfway listen, but halfway don't. That's really frustrating for me, but that's a much longer conversation. Point being that for some kids, that kind of stuff can really send them into a whole spiral, right? And I think sometimes in healthcare, I think it's because of how healthcare providers are trained, right? It's really a what they're trained to focus on, that they're so trained to focus on BMI and obesity as like an issue when eating disorders are also a huge issue. Right. Eating disorders are the second deadliest mental illness only behind opioid use disorder. Wow. And you've worked with a lot of clients. Um, with with eating disorders. So of fair number, that was not really like a main focus of what I did until more recently. Um, 
now I would say I work with, uh, I work with probably more disordered eating Mm -hmm. than like diagnosable eating disorders. And what's the difference? So disordered eating is just a lot of times they'll have a lot of criteria of an eating disorder, but not enough to actually meet the full criteria for the disorder. Okay. So when we talk about things like orthorexia, like that, that's not an actually diagnosable eating disorder. I've never even heard of that. What is that? Orthorexia. Ah, it's like an obsession with clean eating. Ah, okay. So a lot of times it's people, they'll be like super rigid and very restricted about what they can eat and what is like allowed to be eaten. And so it doesn't really meet full criteria for like anorexia or bulimia. Like it doesn't really meet criteria for any of that, but it's still not really healthy. They're very restricted, very obsessive about what they're eating. So it's not really an eating disorder, but it's also not super healthy. And so there's a lot of people, um, even just excessive dieting, like like kind of repeated or frequent dieting or dieting where it becomes really obsessive when it's like kind of taking over a large portion of your life when you're like not going to social events or like packing your own food to go to places or not eating when you go out because you can't like control track those calories or right. Right. So those are all kind of things that would fall under probably disordered eating. Okay. But don't meeting eating disorder criteria. Now, you mentioned as well that when you were working um, as a licensed clinical social worker that you worked with a lot of trauma um, situations and, and, and clients with trauma crises. Um, do you feel that now in your personal training business that you are still acting in that sort of therapeutic counseling role, but just in a completely different setting? Kind of yes and no. So I have a certification in trauma-informed weightlifting. And so I try to bring that sort of trauma-informed sense to like everything that I do. And in personal training, a lot of times it's about allowing my clients to have a little bit of like choice or like self-direction into what we're doing. So and checking in with them at the start of the session to kind of see, like, where are we at today, right now, in this moment? Like, who is the person that is showing up to session today? Because that can vary from day to day, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's days where you show up and it's like, I want to do something high energy and I really want to move and whatever. And then there's other days where it's like, I'm just beat. I'm tired. Like, I didn't want to do anything, but we had this appointment. So here I am. And the kind of movement that's going to feel good is going to be different in both of those scenarios, right? So that's part of kind of my trauma-informed approach to personal training. And I will say my clients and I, we get into all kinds of chats, yeah. but definitely my my approach when we're in personal training session is different than it would be in therapy. Okay. Do you, um, taking it, bringing it back now to mothers and some of the, some of the moms that you work with, um, I'm not sure what your personal experience was after motherhood. Um, and I know that everybody's situation, everybody's circumstance is different. Everybody's bodies change and adapt and shift in different ways after pregnancy. But do you work with moms who suffer or struggle with 
low self-esteem or body-related issues in particular because of ways that their bodies have changed after growing and housing a baby. Yeah, definitely. I It always bums me out so much to see how hard women can be on themselves and on their bodies after pregnancy. And yeah. that's where I, I really think that trying to find a weight neutral approach and just trying to have some acceptance and give yourself some grace and find movement that works. And sometimes, especially in that first year or so, like movement is, it may not look like what it did at Mm -hmm. other times in your life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just really try to coach like finding some acceptance of your body and just giving yourself permission to sort of be as you are. I think that's so important. I wanted to ask you actually a little bit, Jess, about your own motherhood story. So what was sort of your experience yourself, like in through that sort of pregnancy stage or pregnancy stages and your postpartum experiences and and like your personal experience with, with body changes postpartum? So both of my pregnancies were like, planned. I got pregnant on purpose, no surprises or anything. And both times I had a ton of morning sickness, uh, which really should have been called all damn day sickness. It was just, we talk about this often in the podcast. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It was terrible. And weirdly like a little bit different both times. Okay. Like it, Like I was very sick both times, but it was not exactly the same both times. So my first, I remember my um, midwife had, so I had lost some weight from being sick and she had kind of given me this talk like it would be cool if I just didn't gain any weight and stayed like that weight. And then like I would end my pregnancy not weighing as much. And at the time, like if someone said that to me now, I I don't even, I don't even know what kind of reaction I would have. But at the time, I think I was so filled with like shame about my body and about my size that instead of being upset at her and feeling like that's a effed up thing to say to a person, I took, I internalized that. And felt like not like she's being a jerk instead I felt like my body is bad and I should feel bad about it okay yeah so obviously that did not happen I mean I didn't gain a lot of weight but like I gained weight during pregnancy like a normal normal, (laughs) healthy pregnant person should and I ended up with my first having a c-section because he was breech okay that was surprisingly hard on me. So the one part that was hard was there was a part of me that really felt like my body couldn't even deliver a baby right. So there was definitely this kind of like just feeling generally bad about myself and my body because it just couldn't do the things that it was like supposed to do. Mm-hmm. The other thing was my C-section scar, like the way it healed like I think fine and I think normal, but like I def like my belly kind of like hangs over it a little bit, and that bothered me a lot, like a lot, a lot. I really had a hard time with that because I guess 
I don't know. I don't even know how to explain it, but it's like I had always been bigger, but like my belly was at least like smooth. Right. right? And there was some part of me that felt like, I don't know, like, like that gosh. now it just looked jacked up. That's, uh, gosh, that's like the last thing that a mom needs after having a baby in them for nine, 10 months. And, and this, this pressure that you feel about, am I gaining too much weight? Am I, what am, am I going to bounce back after pregnancy? And, oh, then, and then I have, uh, you know, you hear about it so often of, of people who have unplanned C-sections, you know, some are planned and some are unplanned and some are emergency. And, but to then on top of all of that, and on top of the recovery and on top of everything to have insecurities about a scar, you know, that brought a child into the world. Like it's just, yeah. It's just another heavy thing <laughs> to to, yeah. you know, to to put on ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there just really was a part of me that felt like I had failed. Yeah. Which is also like a super bummer. Like, so then with my second son, we had a planned home birth. Okay. Which, you know, I don't know, like people have strong feelings about home births generally and I'm not looking to like start a whole like is home birth safe debate or whatever. Right. But that was what we did. But the midwife missed it. <laughs> what? So, yes. Just couldn't get there in time? She she just thought that my labor was going to be longer than it was. And so she was like out at a home visit, like checking up on someone else's new baby and just doing other things. And Oops. there's a so she was I'm in New Jersey. Delaware is the state immediately south of us. Uh, she was in Delaware on the bridge in between Delaware and New Jersey, which is like 20 ish minutes from our house. And my husband is on the phone with her. Like, I can see the top of the baby's head. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Jess. Oh, my God. Did your husband deliver the baby? Yes, he did. Yes, he sure did. Yeah. So my husband delivered. Oh, yeah. uh, my husband delivered the baby. Wow. Yeah. So she can't, it was like straight up out of a movie. Like she came running into the house probably 90 seconds after my husband had like put the baby down on the floor and we were like, it's a boy. And yeah. Oh my gosh. And wow. That is, I'm really glad we, uh, that I asked you about that. Cause you've had, uh, two very, very different experiences, right? Yeah, very but so with the second, I guess just because of how he was born and he was also like nine pounds and four ounces, I tore and it didn't heal right. So I ended up when he was about two months old, having to have surgery, um, the surgery most of the way fixed it. But when I was finally cleared to uh, look, it's a mom's podcast. Yeah. I'm going to lay it all out there. When I was finally cleared to be able to have sex again, like I couldn't, like I just could, I couldn't. Yeah pain it like I don't even know how to describe it other than like it felt like a closed door yeah. and nope yeah it just was like none shall pass <laughs> and then you know I'm going to doctors and everyone's like it looks fine I don't see any problems I don't really know eventually and he was probably about two years old by the time that I made it to a urogynecological specialist oh wow who I had seen an ad for them. And one of the things that they listed on their specialties was painful sex. And I'm like, worth a try. I don't know. We ended up doing, I think it took about, I don't know, six months, nine months, maybe of, they were doing a combination of 
injections and then pelvic floor physical therapy. Huge. And uh, it was a lot to kind of work through that. But I feel like in the time since then, I hear so many more people talking about pelvic floor PT. Yes. Um, the listener should go back to episode three, where I talked to my pelvic floor therapist. <laughs> see, and when I was struggling through that, like I was super ashamed and embarrassed about it, right? I was really uncomfortable talking about it. I also was like, it was just really scary Yeah. Too to like, you know, I'm in my, you're, you're a young woman and you're right. I'm like in my early thirties and yeah. it's like, is this like forever? I hope this isn't forever. Right. So yes. If you're having downstairs issues postpartum, check out pelvic floor PT, whether it's like urinary issues or more like rectal or vaginal issues, scar tissue, because that was a big part of my problem was Mm -hmm. like, I just had a lot of scar tissue and we needed to like work on that. And for me, you know, the doctors are so quick to like, oh, just do kegels. Yeah. The pelvic floor PT explained to me like, that's actually terrible advice for you because right now your muscles are in spasm so, right. and they're so clenched up. You can't strengthen a muscle that's just in spasm like mm. that. You have to be able to relax the muscle. That's, yeah, that's first. exactly what my public floor therapist said as well, that it's just as important to be able to relax the muscle as it is to contract it. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So, um, <laughs> so it sounds like you in your own personal experience, have had a lot of mental and emotional things to work through from your own experience, delivering um, and recovering, you know, postpartum. And I was wondering now if we could take a second to talk about some takeaways to the listener for this episode, some things that they can think about or put into practice. And I was wondering if you had any tips for moms on mindset and mental health, particularly in this sort of time when they're trying to find that body neutrality after having a baby? Yeah. So first and foremost, I would say, allow yourself to grieve, allow yourself to feel the feelings that show up. I know for me, some of it felt really like silly, like it felt silly to feel sad about a C-section scar when I have a healthy baby I am overall fine, right? right? It feels a little bit silly, but try to, you don't need to invalidate yourself about that. Like, you know, I think, I don't know if everyone is raised like this or if it's a cultural thing or what, but I think some of us get into that, like, well, other, it could be worse. You don't need to invalidate yourself like that. It's It's, all about, yeah, the comparing the comparing ourselves to others and saying, well, it's not as bad as that person has it. So right. I shouldn't feel bad or I can't right. have this emotion that I'm feeling. Yeah. Right. Both things can be true, right? Like you can feel sad about a thing that you are experiencing and at the same time realize that like, yeah, it is possible that it could be worse, but I'm still allowed to feel however I feel about it. I think it's important to like give yourself the space to feel the feelings that you feel. You don't have to live in them forever, but it's a lot more productive to experience it and like move through it than to like, we're going to press this deep down inside and just ignore it. Yeah. Um, the other thing 
I would say I, and I'm going to give anyone who hears this full permission, clean up your social media, however you see fit. Mute, snooze, unfollow, like these are your friends. And I think some people act like it's like immature or something to like snooze people that make you feel bad. It It is not. It is not. Our brains are not evolved to manage the emotions that we experience from seeing, you know, hundreds or even thousands of different people and their opinions and whatever every single day, right? We can, most of us, manage the emotions that come up from seeing the people that we would see it like on a normal day-to-day basis. Yeah. But when it's literally the whole universe of people out there, we're not well adapted to that. So whether it's your cousin who loves to show off her six pack abs after having triplets and that just sends you into like a comparison spiral snoozer it doesn't matter it's not that important yeah or if it's your coworker who's constantly like sign up for this shake program i lost 50 pounds in two months muter you don't need to see that you don't need to see it every day you really do not Mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with unfollowing. And you don't have to tell people, you don't have to, if you're worried about that, if you're worried about, oh, I don't, what would they think if I unfollowed them or if I, they knew I muted them or snoozed them? You don't have to tell them. Yeah. You just, just do what, do what's good for you. Yeah, absolutely. So that said, I encourage following or adding people or accounts who make you feel better. It's super helpful to look for um, people in bodies similar to yours who are out like living their lives and not hating their bodies. I have found it helpful in my journey to find like diverse people, right? Like when you follow fitness accounts, there's definitely a certain type of body that gets a lot of traction. And it's been helpful to me to look for much more diverse people doing athletic things out there. And these people are, we're out here doing things, but you know, I think social media really prioritizes like the 25 year old fitspo accounts. And do you have Jess any suggestions? Like what what are a couple of people that you follow regularly on on your social media? I would say Meg Boggs is like a strength athlete in a bigger body. Um Lashante Snell is another larger athlete who is a mom. And so she shares also about struggles with like endometriosis and different kind of health conditions. And she runs a lot, but she also does a lot of like strength training. So I I just think it's really helpful to be able to sort of see yourself reflected and see someone who looks similar to you, who's like accepting their body and living their life and enjoying it mm-hmm. and not just like sucked into the war. I think it's just helpful to remember who who profits from you feeling bad about yourself. And similarly to like working through your grief, like you don't necessarily need to like live in this emotion, but like, I think it's helpful to like get a little angry about it. Like, because it is kind of enraging to realize that there's this massive, like $7 billion diet industry. And that's just in the U S worldwide. I don't remember the figure off the top of my head, but it's a lot. And that they, they both like create the insecurities and then sell you the solution. Yes. Yes. And I think it's especially heinous how much they target 
new moms because they know that it's a really vulnerable time. And it's all about like marketing like that is all about finding your pain points. And then they won't use the word exploiting. (laughs) I will use the word exploiting. They'll, you know, be like offering solutions to those pain points, but it's, they'll use the language of like, we're, we want to find those pain points and then offer the solution for it, which you. I find to be incredibly exploitative, <laughs> yeah. especially when you know that your solution is it's not long term. It's not actually go- nearly any diet will work in the short term. Yeah. Uh, none of them work in the long term. Um, you teach about something called intuitive eating. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yes. I'm so happy you circled back to that because I mentioned it like just like quick at the beginning. We got there. We got there naturally. Intuitive eating is an approach to eating that was developed by a pair of dietitians, Elise Resch and Evelyn Triboli. It involves 10 principles. The whole purpose of it is to make peace with food and peace with your body and to stop fighting the fight. So intuitive eating is specifically anti-diet. It is anti-intentional weight loss. I put some emphasis on that intentional because yeah, you're not bad if you lose weight, but if you're trying to practice intuitive eating, focusing your attention on trying to purposefully lose weight is it's not gonna move you in the direction that you want to go. So when we're practicing intuitive eating, a lot of it is about honoring your body, listening to your body's own internal cues, which diet culture really leads us away from, right? You're supposed to like try to drink water when you feel hungry or whatever, right? Instead, in intuitive eating, we're like, no, your body says it's hungry. You should eat. That is the appropriate solution to your body signaling hunger to you. The thing with intuitive eating is it really is It's a process and more of like an overall approach to kind of health, food, and eating. I think I first came to intuitive eating, I want to say it's probably been like about four years ago now. I picked up a book about, I think it was called Reclaiming Yourself from Binge Eating. And in that book, she talked about, it was based on the principles of intuitive eating. Okay. So from there, the next book that I picked up was obviously the original intuitive eating book. And basically, once I saw, so in the first book that I read, she presented this kind of chart, and it's one that I use with people a lot, um, that's the binge restrict cycle. So you restrict, and then through that restriction, develop these intense cravings and feelings of like hunger, deprivation, whatever, that eventually leads into a binge. You overeat, eat a bunch of stuff that you don't, didn't really want to, whatever. After that, you're filled with feelings of guilt and shame and remorse and maybe some physical feelings from having overeaten so much. Mentally, you think that the solution to this is I got to get like back on track. I got to get back on the wagon and, you know, get my diet going again, and that that's going to be the thing that helps you to feel better. And in the short term, it usually does because it gives you this sense of control and of uh, it gives you a sense of like, I am doing the right thing. I'm doing good. And but then 
that leads back into the cycle starts again, the cycle again. Yeah. Right. Once I saw that and it was like light bulb, right. I had gone into the book with this idea that like, I'm going to get my binging under control and then I'll be able to lose all the weight that I want to lose. And instead it blew my mind. And I was like, I can't diet ever again. (laughs) This is just, I can't, I can't do it. This is terribly unhealthy for me. So since then I got the intuitive eating certification. Um, I've done like a lot of workshops in my area, some virtual It's just really great to be able to offer that to other people because not everyone's story sounds exactly like mine, right? Like we all sort of have our own journey, but I think broadly that diet culture really does a number on most of us. And I would agree with that. (laughs) Um, Jess, where can people find you online? You mentioned that you have your um, Enlighten Well is an online fitness boutique. Um, yes. And you uh, offer virtual sessions as well as a bank um, and and probably a lot more information about a lot of the things that we've discussed today. So I'm at enlightenwellllc.com. And I'm also, like I said, I'm working on building up some more intuitive eating stuff. So hopefully we'll have some new stuff along those lines launching in the near future. I'm also on both Instagram and Facebook at enlightenwell. Okay, that's great. And Jess, I just want to say thank you so much for being here today. It's been really, really interesting talking to you about your transitions and just everything that we've discussed. So I I really hope that any number of the topics that we've covered can connect with somebody that's listening. Thank you so much for having me. I like I always love just trying to spread the love and the joy to other people. Hey, mamas, thanks for sticking with me till the end. And remember, you may feel uncomfortable, unhappy, or unfamiliar with your body after having children, but you are not alone in your experience. I'm not trying to tell anybody what they should or shouldn't do to feel better in their bodies, but I hope that today's episode at least introduced you to the idea of health and happiness not being directly correlated to the number on that scale. Healthy is not one size fits all. And although superheroes don't always have stretch marks or loose skin or wider hips than before childbirth, many of them do, so don't forget it. Thanks again to Jess and to the women who raised their hands and contributed their stories and experiences today. And if you related to anything you heard in today's episode, then I have one simple ask. Share it. Share it on your social media or tell a mom about it in your weekly baby group or print out flyers and paper your local parks. You don't have to do all of those things, but why not share with one other mom you know who's experienced a similar struggle? All right, mamas, that's all for today's episode. Until next time. Hey, Mama, thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the Raise Your Hand Motherhood podcast. I made it for you, so I hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so we can hang out together again soon.